I'll just pick up on some things I wanted to, I was starting to say is that what Big Tent is, for those of you who are new to our group, US, Big Tent USA is a national grassroots advocacy organization that promotes a moderate political platform focusing on rights of all Americans, civic engagement and good governance at both the state and federal level. Founded by a group of women in 2019, Big Tent breaks through the political noise and provides substantive information, concrete action items, and, in, and, and innovative activism opportunities for members to make a positive difference in their community and beyond. As part of our education series, we are honored to have as guests an array of thought leaders, elected officials, political activists, academics, and issue advocates. We will kick off our 2022 Spotlight Speaker Series with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who will be joining us on January 12th at 7 p.m. to discuss how dark money has built the federal judiciary and the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, as we know, we are delighted to have Charlie Whelan and Catherine Biggs under the tent. Um, but to help with some other potential technical problems, I just want to remind everyone to please use a, use a chat function to um, ask any questions during tonight's conversation. And if the live transcription is required, uh, you can enable that by pressing the live transcript tab at the bottom of your screen. Now, as for tonight's speaker, Charlie Whelan, when I first learned he was a professor at Dartmouth College, I immediately texted my daughter who was a student there. And I asked her if she knew anything about this professor, Whelan, and she, and I even actually went as far as to suggest she should take a course with him. Well, to my surprise, she quickly responded with, I'm actually in a class with him right now, and he's the reason I'm a public policy minor at school. And well, well, given that resounding endorsement, my due diligence on Charlie stopped right then and there. But here's a bit more, bit more back room for you all. Charlie Wheeling is the author of the Centrist Manifesto. He wrote that in 2019, and that's what helped him launch the national organization, Unite America of which he is the founder and co-chair. Unite America is a movement of Democrats, Republicans, and independents working to bridge the growing partisan divide in order to foster a more representative and functional government in our country today. Charlie is a senior lecturer and a policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College. He joined the faculty there full-time in 2012 and earned the Dean of the Faculty Teaching Award in 2020. In 2009, Charlie ran for Congress as a representative from the Illinois 5th District in the special election to replace Rahm Emanuel. He was a former correspondent for The Economist and is the author of New York Times best-selling books, Naked Economics, Naked Statistics, and Naked Money. And interestingly, his first novel, The Rationing, was published in 2019 and is strangely prescient as it's about a global pandemic. Charlie holds a PhD in public policy from the University of Chicago, a master's in public affairs from Princeton University, and a BA from Dartmouth College. Now, before turning things over to our moderator this evening, a bit of background on Catherine. Catherine is a passionate volunteer for numerous organizations, most notably the Boys and Girls Club in Silicon Valley, as well, her undergraduate alma maters are, are Dartmouth College and Kellogg School of Management. 
For Dartmouth, she co-founded the Centennial Circle, which has raised over $75 million in financial aid since its inception in 2014. Catherine also serves as a co-chair of the Leadership Circle of Galvanize, an organization focused on the moderate white female vote in rural and small town swing states. And now on a final, more personal note, we already know well, Charlie and Catherine are classmates and friends from Dartmouth, and you've already gathered Catherine's my sister-in-law. So with that, Catherine, please take it away. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tracy and Kitty, and welcome everyone. And thanks so much for your questions that you sent in advance. Um, it's really such an honor to help moderate the discussion with Charlie, whom I've known since the fall of 1984, when Ronald Reagan was running for re-election. Um, you will quickly see why Charlie's classes are in high demand and fill up so quickly and why he has earned so many accolades and honors as a professor. So we're gonna to speak to Charlie for about 30 minutes and we'll also be addressing questions that come in through the chat as Tracy mentioned, so please use that feature. We have three key topics with questions um, tonight that fall into the following areas. First, we're gonna talk about Unite America, which is the organization that Charlie founded in 2013 and his theory of change. Secondly, we're gonna talk about running for Congress and money in politics, a, a precursor to the spotlight speaker in January. And uh, thirdly, uh, engaging youth in our political discourse. And then, like I said, we'll turn to questions and thoughts that have come through the chat. So let's start with um, Unite America, Charlie. Uh, how did you end up starting Unite, Unite America? Well, I tried a number of other things that didn't work. and <laughs> We slowly steered our way there's no single silver bullet here. I realized around 2013 that something wasn't working. There were a number of strands that came together. The first was, as my introduction made clear, I'm teaching public policy on a day-to-day -day basis. So I would teach a class to Dharma students that was an overview of the big federal issues, looking at education, energy, climate change, the task situation, the federal budget. And what was clear, healthcare, was that all of those things were stalled. And I think that's regardless of your ideology, we, there were just gains that could be made that we were not making. Healthcare is a perfect example. You look at how the American system compares to the rest of the world, it's more expensive and has on many dimensions, mediocre outcomes. So I was watching the policy side of things move away from us. And many of those issues are such that if you don't do something, they just get worse. So standing still is not standing still. It's allowing the problem to move away from you. Then, as you alluded to, I'd had some political experience. So the one thing that didn't come up in the introduction is my very first job out of Dartmouth was writing speeches for Jock McKernan, who was the, the Republican governor of Maine, the old-fashioned New England Republican. Many of you may know he's married to Olympia Snow. She went on to become more famous because she ran and won that Senate seat. But she was in the House when I was writing speeches for Jock McKernan. That Republican has been hunted to extinction. So I saw that party kind of move. We've all watched that movie. And then in 2009, I ran as a Democrat in the Democratic primary for Congress. And I realized I could never get out of the Democratic primary. I'm married to Leah, who's also a classmate of ours. She was in the process of becoming a public school teacher and going to work in a charter school where you, you cannot win a Democratic primary in Chicago if you've got any connection to charter schools whatsoever, even though the research is very clear that they're an important tool for helping poor and disadvantaged kids. So at that point, 
I realized, okay, there's no place for me in the political system, even though I consider myself to be a relatively moderate centrist person. So I'm watching the policy side move away. I don't have a place for me in the political system. And then the last strand, and I think I've only become conscious of this lately, is I've been teaching international classes at Dartmouth, where we go to places like Northern Ireland, Rwanda, Liberia, that have been torn apart. And I think having done that over a number of years, it's made me aware of how fragile these societies are. Democracy is fragile. Governance is much more difficult than we think it is. And so the confluence of those things led me to write the Centrist Manifesto. Some of those ideas have aged better than others. The key idea was to create a governing fulcrum in the Senate of centrists who could then radiate influence out. I still think that's a very powerful concept. I also believe we could start a new political party. I think given the electoral rules we have now, that is less likely. It's, it's more likely that a third party candidate would play a spoiler. Um, but this idea that without some connective tissue between the two parties and across all Americans, we can't govern. I think that's the most powerful idea. And Unite America is an organization that is working for process changes. So anti-gerrymandering reform, ranked choice voting that we think will help restore power to the political middle. Great, thank you. Um, speaking of gerrymandering, uh, you know, I understand that it protects politicians by creating safe districts that really uh, limit competition from other parties. And like you said, this is one of the things you're working on. What are some of your ideas to solve this? Well, first, I think it's worth pointing out some of the more subtle costs of gerrymandering, because everybody sees that kind of headline, which is they do protect incumbents. And there is a disconnect between Americans' favorability towards Congress, which is barely double digits, and then 91 to 93% of them getting reelected. There's something not quite right about that. But there are two other really bad things about gerrymandering that don't get enough attention. One is when you see these districts that have been gerrymandered and look like some kind of metastasizing growth, that is a physical manifestation of something broken. When an average person looks at those gerrymandered districts, what it tells them is the politicians are using the system for their own interest. They are, the politicians are choosing their voters rather than the other way around. So I think it is people have a sense that something's wrong and that is the physical manifestation of it. But then the behavioral piece of it is that if you are in one of those safe districts, whether it's been gerrymandered red or it's been gerrymandered blue, the only person you are gonna lose to is somebody who is more extreme in your own party in the primary. So when we were growing up, when we went to Dartmouth, the word primary was not yet a verb. You did not primary somebody, it's now a verb. So think about the incentives that creates. If you are in a safe district, worried only about losing to a, in a primary to someone more extreme, to the left of you if you're a Democrat, to the right of you if you're a Republican, then your behavior in Congress is not going to be to reach across the aisle. That is the one thing that will get you primary. Instead, if you just keep throwing red meat, talking about things that radiate well on Twitter with your base, you're going to be fine, but that is inconsistent with governance. Great. Um, would you also comment on the recent Alaskan referendum and, and ranked choice? Um, 
I know that it didn't receive a lot of uh, great media coverage, but really wanted to, to dive into that. And of course, also the recent uh, mayoral election when uh, a Dartmouth peer of ours uh, ran for, for mayor. Yeah, so Alaska did something quite radical in 2020. While the rest of us were watching the main event, the main circus, Alaska had a referendum on the ballot that replay it passed just barely 50.1 or 50.2 percent of the vote we didn't even know for weeks whether it had passed or not they replaced their partisan primary system so they got rid of republican primaries and democratic primaries with an open primary system so all the candidates who are running for federal and state offices run in a single primary kind of like a student council election and we'll come back to that in a minute because i like the the analogy and then the top four finishers go on to the general election and they are elected by ranked choice voting, which means that everybody goes and you rank your choices, one, two, three, four. If one person gets 50% of the first place votes, then that person is elected straight away. You have a majority winner. If not, the person who is last is eliminated. All of the folks who voted for that person now get their second choice. That becomes their first choice. And again, you do the same thing. If somebody gets 50%, you have a majority winner. You, you continue to do that until it's all over. Well, what's so powerful about Alaska is that without changing any of the voters' preferences, you're gonna get somebody who is more likely to be moderate and more likely to be reflective of the underlying electorate for a couple of reasons. One is you've done away with, with partisan primaries. And let's just think for a second. Go back to the student council election. Imagine you elected your senior class president the band nominated one candidate and the football team nominated the other. And then the whole school got to choose between those two. And they would likely say, well, you know, those are very different organizations. Well, how come the rest of us don't get a say in who is on the general election ballot? And that's effectively what happens with partisan primaries. You have a very, very small turnout and those are the most hyper-partisan people. Then the rest of us show up and vote on whoever the Republican diehards and Democratic diehards have put on the ballot. So Alaska does away with that. You could have a general election with three Democrats and one Republican. It could be three independents and a Democrat. And then ranked choice voting means that all of the candidates in the race have an incentive to appeal to all of the voters because being someone's second choice vote can be very powerful. So you can say, look, I, I understand you wanna vote, you're gonna vote for the Green Party or you're a Libertarian, but make me your second choice, because I share a lot of those, not all of those things, but a lot of your concerns, and that forces people together. And of course, you, you can't be really nasty to anybody else in the field, which is, of course, the MO of every other American election. I'm just going to light you up with negative ads. In ranked choice voting, I'm going to say, well, Catherine and I disagree on the following things, so make me your first choice. But you know what? Here's what I really like about what Catherine's saying. Here's what I'm listening to. That is totally inimical to any other election. So the fact that Alaska passed that, and of course we saw an immediate change in Lisa Murkowski's behavior. She's the Republican Senator from Alaska who realized immediately she would never have to run again in a Republican primary. She believes she can win a general election, but and then she went on and voted to convict Donald Trump in the Senate over impeachment because she could vote her conscience believing that she could be reelected if she didn't have to run in a partisan uh, Republican primary. Thanks, we uh, got a question in the chat about, um, speaking of the primary problem, 
um, and talking about Alaska model inspired by uh, Catherine Gale, Michael Porter, how supportive is Unite America of final five voting? Oh, in, in entirely supportive. So we've been working with Catherine and Michael. And in fact, a lot of their work came out of the original centrist project, which, um, which grew out of the centrist manifesto. So um, we've been working collaboratively for almost 10 years now. And in fact, I remember sitting down with Catherine and Michael in Cambridge, probably six or eight years ago, talking through some of this stuff. So they're working aggressively on Final Five. To be honest, Final Five, Final Four, these are different flavors of something that's just radically better than what we have. But that's what they've settled on. And they're working really hard to introduce other state referendums. And you know, for people who are looking for sources of optimism, there is a lot of entrepreneurial activity at the state level. That is where these changes happen. You see anti-gerrymandering referendums, you see legislatures doing brave things, you see what Michael and Catherine are doing around Final Five. And there is a contagion effect. When Alaska proves you can pass something like this, then it empowers people in other states to take up the mantle. That's part of what we're trying to do with Unite America is we look for the mushrooms that are coming up. We can't drop ourselves into a state and think that it's gonna work. That's kind of like you know national voter imperialism, but we can find state movements that look up promising and offer them support and guidance. And that's kind of our guiding principle. There's lots of questions that are coming in the chat about um, ranked choice voting and other ways to kind of gain the system. Everything from, you know, I'm going to uh, uh, channel off a couple of them, everything from changing your registration to vote in the other party's primary, and I definitely have family members who do this, to voters gaming the system with ranked choice and getting outcomes that aren't centrist. Um, any comments there on that, Charlie? I thought that the results in New York City with ranked choice voting were encouraging. And in fact, you mentioned our Dartmouth peer, Maya, um, Maya Wiley, who's a little older than we are, who ran in that race. She was actually up at Dartmouth a couple of weeks ago debriefing on the race. She lost, obviously, to Eric Adams. But what's interesting is she was still an enthusiastic supporter of ranked choice voting, even after having lost that race, which I think is, is testimony to the way the system worked. Many people would say that Eric Adams was one of the more moderate members of that field. I don't know New York City politics enough to affirm that, but it, it would appear to have delivered the result that people say it's supposed to, to do. Now, New York kind of messed it up on the administration side. That was separate from how easy it is to actually do. But my hope is that you're gonna see it with more frequency. And then when people have been through it once, they'll appreciate how and why it delivers better outcomes. And that will be a positive development. It's very, very friendly for new entrants. I mean, you think about one of the things that's wrong with our system is we have two political parties around the rest of the world. There are usually four or five vibrant parties because they have a parliamentary system that facilitates more than two parties. Well, anything with just two parties means that it's kind of the equivalent of political trench warfare. It's us versus them. It's just not a healthy dynamic. Ranked choice voting, because you don't play a spoiler effect if you are a third party or an independent, will help to foster, I hope, more entrepreneurial activity with regard to new parties, new movements, those kinds of things. Right. So um, 
one person put into the chat about how ranked choice really failed in San Francisco and how the one progressive beat the three moderates with only 37% of uh, first place votes. Um, you know, are we ready for ranked choice voting in, in today's really politicized climate? Well, I've, I've heard that about the, the San Francisco race. I just don't know enough about the dynamics to know what had happened. If there, were, if there really was one progressive and three moderates, it shouldn't have worked that way. I guess if people who put, you know, each of the moderates is number one and the progressive is number two, then I guess they do kind of split the vote. Um, so there is, I suppose, no protecting against that. Um, but, you know, we've had plenty of bad outcomes with the system we got. So, and there is, you know, one of these political scientists will tell you is there's no perfect system. We just hope uh, that in general, we'll get more collegial races, more political competition, and more people getting somebody whom they're comfortable with as a, an ultimate first choice pick. Great. So is, do you think another question that came into the chat is ranked choice voting something that could be included in the Freedom to Vote Act? Or is I this going that, to be um, a state by state? I believe it is a state by state thing because the states have control over their own election systems like Alaska. There are plenty of things that can be done in that act to strengthen our voting system. But I believe, and I could be wrong, that at the end of the day, the states still have control over their own election systems. And we should point out that the Maine went before Alaska and chose ranked choice voting as well, but they didn't open up their primaries. So you're seeing states kind of chip away at this. The Alaska reform was a more comprehensive reform. So I believe it's going to have to bubble up from the state level. And honestly, if we've learned anything, these things tend to be more durable if they come up from the states. I'm more and more suspicious of policy that starts in Washington and is foisted on states. It causes kind of an instinctive backlash, particularly as people are not entirely familiar with the system. Yeah, that's definitely true. A lot more trust within the state. Um, thanks for that. So um, getting back to a little bit about your Centrist Manifesto and Unite America, given how it divided our parties and our country is now, what are your views about the likelihood of a ideally moderate third party? And could, when you address that, could you explain the difference between a moderate and a centrist? Yes, yeah, so somebody else, I forgot his name, but somebody wrote a nice essay on the difference between moderate and centrist. Centrist tends to be to define your views. You know, I've looked at the policy and my centrist view consists of doing a little of X and a little of Y. Moderate tends to be your bear, like how you conduct yourself. So you could actually be kind of a radical centrist. You come into the room, horns blaring, highly partisan, but your, your views on paper happen to be kind of split the difference. Whereas moderate, I think, is more respectful of other people's views. So one of them is kind of how you comport yourself. And one of them is the policies that you actually adopt. But they're used interchangeably, I think. And they're all a little pejorative. I mean, sadly, we've come to a place where compromise is viewed kind of negatively. And centrist is viewed, unfortunately, as well. You don't have the courage of your convictions which is certainly not the spirit of, say, the Constitutional Convention and other moments in history. So I think big picture what we're trying to do here is what I alluded to earlier, which is to restore that connective tissue. There's a, you know, we don't have any slides here, but there's a graphic that I think is quite powerful. I showed to my students and it shows the ideological overlap in Congress from about in the 1960s and 1970s. And what you see is some 
Southern Democrats are actually more conservative than New England Republicans. So you, you see kind of an overlap of red and blue. And by the time you get to the late 90s and now, there's no ideological overlap at all between the Republicans. So the most liberal Republican is still more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. And since we're almost 50-50 in terms of our elected officials, what that means is if you think you're going to beat the other party into submission, that you're going to win politics with really only 50% of the electorate behind you, only one of two things can happen. Either you win and then the other side wins it back and you have this kind of ping pong policy. If you think about something like the Affordable Care Act, which Obama passed and then Trump tried to reform it or to, to repeal it, and then the Democrats are going to try and strengthen it and the Republicans are going to run a repeal, like we're now in the second decade of that. And you contrast that to the Highway Act, which was passed with lots of Republican and Democratic votes, Medicare, which was passed with lots of, of, of Republican Democratic votes, Social Security, all of those big pieces of legislation are more durable because they had buy-in from both sides. It's just, I think it's a fool's errand to think that you can get your way while leaving 50% of the country out in the cold. And, or the other alternative to the ping pong is just trench warfare, where you dig in and nothing happens because your sides are too far apart. And those are things like the federal budget deficit where you just keep borrowing more money and the problem goes away from you. But neither of those things is consistent with good governance in the long run. So there, I, to my mind, there is no substitute for finding some ideological overlap and then making that the basis for how you govern. Yeah, um, yes, that we're in that situation right now. Yeah, and so just, and I don't know that it's going to be a third party for reasons that we discussed, but it may be a centrist movement. It may be some collaboration of Republicans and Democrats who can who keep their party label, but they might become governance Democrats. You can easily imagine, say, a working group in the Senate of 10 or 12 senators, and we know who they would be. They would be Manchin and Murkowski and Mitt Romney and so on. And they, they would say, yes, and they would describe themselves as, you know, the centrist caucus, the governing caucus. They would keep their own ideological labels, but they would also signal somehow that they were working collaboratively. I could easily see that. And it's probably more realistic than a third party or having them leave their current parties. Right. And how, how would we make that happen um, in today's politicized environment? Is I mean, is this something well, Unite America getting involved in speaking to these people? I mean, certainly you see them. Oh, yes. We're talking all together. the time. We've had a lot of meeting with, meetings with chiefs of staff in the Senate. And there's a lot of interest in it, but there's a, not as much bravery as I would hope on that front. I think we have to be realistic that the, the things that got us here are multifaceted. Most of them happened in our lifetime, and it is worth ticking them off. So most of us grew up without cable news networks being a profit center and dealing in whatever ideology is going to maximize their profits. I mean, that's been a source of polarization. We obviously didn't grow up with social media um, and the fragmentation of news. And it's worth pointing out that the internet was supposed to be pro-democracy. It was supposed to be very healthy for truth and moving beyond the gatekeepers of conventional news and so on. Well, we, we also figured out that it's how the crazies find each other and so on. 
that has changed. Gerrymandering has gotten even better because, even better in the bad sense, we've gotten better at it, because we've also sorted ourselves. Americans are far more likely to live near people who are like them ideologically than they were in the past. Our communities are, we talk a lot about racial integration, which is very important, but so is socioeconomic integration, political integration. We've kind of left those behind, which means it's much easier to, to gerrymander when you know exactly who's living in what neighborhood. So if you add those things up, you're living near people who reflect your own views. You're turning on the television and getting your own views fed back to you. You're getting on social media and seeing what a genius you are that what you've just learned on the news is also true on Facebook. And pretty soon we've sorted ourselves into communities that really don't listen to each other. So it's gonna take a while. I don't know what the solution is around technology and fake news and those kinds of things. I do think it's kind of squishy, but I think Big Tent does a great job. We're gonna have to get better at talking to each other. One of the things I've learned from my classes when I go to a place like Northern Ireland, I've taken students to the Middle East a couple of times, is in those places where conflicts are intractable, not only have people lost the ability to empathize with those who are across the table, they don't even understand that narrative. So if you ask somebody you know, who's uh, involved with Hamas, you know, explain to me why the Jewish state is concerned about what you're doing. I don't know, I just don't get it. Well, you know, well if you don't get it, you're not trying very hard. And so I think one exercise is how good are you at explaining the narrative, whether you agree with it or not, of the people who disagree with you. Take something you feel strongly about, whether it's Roe v. Wade that's being, you know, on either side of that. Can you walk through how somebody who feels equally passionate on the other side of that would explain their position? And I think once you can do that, you, you develop more of a natural empathy. And if you can't do that, then I think it really is a recipe for protracted division. Yeah, so I want to talk about campaign finance reform and your run for Congress. Um, but before we do that, uh, one more question that came into the chat from um, Susan Lehman, which is how can any legislation happen when one party's entire reason to be is to stop the other party from governing and then blame that party for not governing? We've seen this get worse and worse and worse over the past uh, decade or two. So any suggestions there? It's very aggravating to watch the news, isn't it? Is it is very aggravating. You know, I think that the Republicans in particular, but not just Republicans, have done a pretty good job of demonizing governments, right? If you think, so for my whole lifetime, and Catherine, I would say this is true of, you know, our graduating class, we kind of at best took government for granted, right? You know, all these jokes about good enough for government work. And government's one of those things that you take, you, you just take for granted when it's working well, right? We took the TSA for granted. Well, I guess it wasn't the TSA then, but we took airport security for granted until 9-11. And you, just so many other examples like that. And so I think, and of course, you know, it was never considered to be something that you would strive for to go and work in the civil service. And I think that was wrongheaded you know, even if you go back to Bill Clinton saying the era of big government is over. So I think we do have to reinvigorate the importance of government. Now, it is certainly true, as the question suggested, that, you know, one party rather than the other has more vociferously argued against government. But I think that there's, you know, I spent many years at the University of Chicago. There is a more informed way of doing that. I think the debate needs to pivot 
to not big government versus small government, which is just kind of dueling bumper stickers, but a much more sophisticated understanding of what government needs to do, say around climate change, because that's just a classic externality. You know, when you go out and you've got methane coming out of your cows or you know, you're burning coal, you're causing a problem for the rest of us that the market is not going to solve. That's just econ 101. But I think we can also, if we think deeply about it, look at places where the government's not doing as well as it could. I mentioned charter schools earlier, and charter char char schools are government sanctioned, they're government paid for, but it's kind of outside of the traditional public school system. So I think we have to think more creatively about how government can solve problems, and then perhaps that will help to restore the faith in government that has been systematically eroded over all the decades that I've been alive. Great, thank you. Um, we can have you run for president maybe. <laughs> no, I can't, I can't win. <laughs> I can't win, I can't win a primary in either party. I mean, this is why I'm here. I'm, well, thank you for what you do. So speaking of which, in 2009, um, I remember when you ran for Congress, um, in Illinois, special district, like we talked about earlier, to fill the seat that was vacated by Rahm Emanuel when he became White House Chief of Staff for then President Barack Obama. So we have a question in the chat about, you know, campaign finance reform. I'm sure you saw a real inside scooping uh, when you ran for Congress. But, you know, what types of campaign finance reform proposal would really hit that sweet spot of being effective in reining in special interests while still passing muster with the Supreme Court that seems really increasingly dis, uh, disinclined to restrict spending. Yeah, so I'm afraid my answer is gonna be dispiriting here because on many policy problems, whether it's healthcare or climate change, there are proposals out there that are politically unpopular, but substantively pretty good. You know, most economists would embrace a carbon tax to deal with climate change. Voters hate it, but at least it's out there. On campaign finance reform, I have not seen a plan that threads the needle that you just described. Citizens United really changes the game in terms of making it very hard to limit the ability to contribute to campaigns. And as long as there are no limits, and by the way, I'm not even sure limits are a great idea because they can have perverse effects and unintended effects. So I don't know what the solution is. I will tell you, and this is the pessimistic part, that this is one of those things when you're on the inside, it's even worse than you think. So as bad as you think it is, it's worse. And it's worse in ways that won't, won't surprise you. So I'll just give you some examples. My campaign was relatively cheap because it was a special election and it was a crowded field. So we the campaign only went on for about three months. It's like a sprint to the finish, which is actually great because there's less time to raise money, but we still needed to raise about six or $7,000 a day. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but think, you imagine yourself on day 21 because people, they're giving, these are hard donations. So at the time they could only give $2,300 a person. So they have to come in $2,300 checks. We'll talk about the special interest in a minute, so, you know, the day one, you go to your family. Day two, you go to your Dartmouth friends. Day three, you go to your Dartmouth acquaintances. Day five, you go to your neighbors. All right, tell me about day 23. Like you've just, and that is when, there's a true story, the trial attorneys come along, personal injury lawyers, and they say, you know, look, we'd like to throw a fundraiser for you. And, and let me say, when I say 
that we had to raise like six or seven thousand dollars a day. That's because what we were that's what we were spending. Because you've got staff and computers and leases, and that money is going out the door every day. And if you don't raise it, it comes out of my pocket. You know, so wow, four days of no fundraising. There goes half a year of Dharma tuition for my kids. Whoops, that, you know. So that's where the pressure comes from. So the, the personal injury attorneys come along and they say, we'd like to throw a fundraiser for you. We can probably bundle together a bunch of contributions and raise $60,000. And this is like water to a man crawling in the desert. And you're thinking, this is great. And they say, we just have one question. How do you feel about medical tort reform, medical malpractice reform? And I teach public policy. My answer is, you know, I think it's one piece of reforming the healthcare system. And there's kind of a long pause and they say, well, that's not really consistent with our view and that fundraiser's gone, right? So that's $60,000 that doesn't happen. I had a dinner with another guy. He had eight people around the table already to, to max out. It was then $23 a person. They were all Turkish Americans. They had only one question. Do you think Congress should recognize the Armenian genocide? That was all they cared about. Checkbooks poised, pens out. And I said, well, you know, my wife is Leah Yagian. She's Armenian. Her family was wiped out by the Turks. So, you know, I'm kind of sensitive to the Armenian genocide. They're like, yeah, that's a problem, right? So it's very easy to see by the time you've cashed the checks, you've, you've closed doors that need to be open if you're going to make good policy. So I, so that's the, probably no great surprise. The details might be surprising, but I think the more pernicious effect is it is probably the one thing that would keep me from running again. It's, a lot, it's really hard to raise that much money when you're probably not gonna win, which means they're not gonna get anything. And if you do win, they shouldn't get anything either. So you're asking people, unlike building a museum or an aquarium or sending kids to school, you're not getting anything for your contribution other than this kind of amorphous commitment to good government. So I think that the fundraising aspect of the campaigning keeps a lot of people out who would otherwise be admirable public servants. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you wanna talk a little bit also about, about dark money? I know that's a topic that is gonna be in January and also um, it's certainly something with these special interest groups that um, Montana governor, Steve Bullock, who ran for president had made some progress in, in his own state of Montana. Um, so I'd be interested to hear your thought on that. Yeah, so I did, my race did not have any firsthand experience with that because I think it's focused more on high profile races, more on incumbents. The dark money didn't know which of us was going to win. So they, did, they didn't really play in the primary. So I don't really have any special insights other than it's probably as bad as everything I just described, only less transparent. <laughs> so, you know, I suspect your January talk might be slightly more depressing than this one, although we will, I hope, turn to things that we can all do. Um, but I don't, I don't think I have any great insights into the dark money side of things. How about the filibuster? Um, there's a question, speaking of impediments, <laughs> uh, one of the people commented that it feels like the filibuster is just becoming a structural impediment to governing. Yeah, so I am very, very, very ambivalent about filibuster reform. This is one where I see both sides of it. The appeal, obviously, of getting rid of it is you can finally govern again. And, and the Republicans at present have not signaled, with the exception of the infrastructure bill, a willingness to play ball with the administration. But my cautions, I think, would be twofold. 
One is be careful what you wish for because you know you may not be in the majority next time around, and then you don't have the filibuster, right? You know, this is what we saw happen. Um, the Democrats changed some rules around judicial nominations, and then the Republicans were able to use it in a way the Democrats weren't real happy with. So, you know, just the same was true with executive orders. Um, you know, people were very pleased that President Obama did a lot of things by executive order that he couldn't get through Congress, particularly around the EPA and environmental laws and so on. And I was always very, not real keen on that because executive orders are less durable. They don't have the same imprimatur as going through Congress they, and so on. But they, you know, they were executive orders that Democrats liked. And then of course, President Trump turned around and did the same thing also without Congress. And people said, wait, he can do that? It's like, yes, you know, uh, whoever's president can do that. And I feel that way about the filibuster. I think the second thing, and this is maybe naive of me, it gets back to what I said about durable governance, which is I, if you're not passing things with 60 votes in the Senate, I'm not sure they're going to last. I'm not sure it's the best policy. I mean, again, this is my idealistic side. I would prefer to get to a place where we can build a governing coalition that consists of 66 senators as opposed to kind of changing the rules and trying to get by with 51. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so many challenges to bridging the divide. Um, and, you know, just interested in, you know, your thoughts on that and, you know, maybe what we could do to thread the needle for campaign finance reform. I mean, is there, is it, is it just a lost cause or, you know? I wouldn't start with that. I think I would start with, because a lot of the money at the end of the day gets wasted as well. You know, you see some of the, you see your 27th ad. Um, it is, it certainly invites corruption and and other problems, but I think I would, we United America have decided to change, to go for the process reforms because we just can't see a route to campaign finance that, that passes muster with um, Citizens United. I will say, because you brought up the partisanship, one of the things that's motivating American politics right now is negative partisanship, which means not just that you belong to your own tribe, your team red or team blue, it's that you despise the other team so much that you're willing to tolerate whatever your own team does, even when you know it might be quite silly. And you know, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, it's not too hard to look at your own side and say some things could be better. You know, so I'll give you just one example that I found quite frustrating, which is um, you know, in the era of all the the legitimate scrutiny of police departments around the country, um, after all the high profile police misconduct and all the rest, people rightfully said, look, the police unions are protecting the bad apples. I mean, that's, it's really, they're powerful unions and there's a bad tale of police officers who are responsible for a disproportionate number of bad acts, including police shootings. So we should be able to get rid of them. And, you know, and Democrats were banging that drum. And then as somebody who spends a lot of time in education policy, they didn't turn the focus just slightly to the teachers unions, which also protect a lot of bad actors and mm -hmm. act in ways that are very bad for poor and minority children and kept a lot of kids out of school. I'm from Chicago originally. Those kids in Chicago public schools were out of school all of last year. The data are already in. That is terrible for everybody, but it is particularly bad for poor kids. So that's an example where, look, if you, while you got the lens out, let's look at all of the organizations that might be doing 
harm uh, to people that we care about. And so, you know, I think one thing we can all do is when we're tempted to criticize the other team, I think it will be more powerful if we offer honest appraisal of our own. You know, I don't even like to use the team, but the, you know, that even when someone's doing something we believe in, when they stray into an area that might be intellectually dishonest or they overplay their hand or they're not sympathetic enough to those who are on the other side, I think we can call out our own and it's gonna be more effective. At this point, when you criticize the other side, it just bounces off. Nobody really cares what Nancy Pelosi says about the Republicans or what Donald Trump says about the Democrats. That's not gonna change behavior on the Republican or Democratic side. It makes for good theater, but if Democrats, credible Democrats criticize or just offer input on their own party and say, look, we could be better here, that I think will change the dialogue and give us better policy. Yes, um, thank you for that as well, Charlie. I, I do wish I were a student again. <laughs> yeah, we just gave out grades. So, you know, you, you probably have selected memory. I, I would want to do the NRO option just to be clear. <laughs> That's the non-recording pass, no pass. So let's pivot to um, elections and how, you know, how elections are protected. Can you talk about, is this an area that Unite America is working on where you're protecting elections and election officials who are now even themselves under threat? And um, Vanessa put a comment into the, the chat rather that you know commented about, it just seems like state laws are protecting their personal information and giving them more resources in general will be important going forward. So yeah, I think it's crucial. I mean, talk, I, I mentioned earlier, things we take for granted. I mean, who other than in 2000, I forget the Secretary of State's name in Florida. We all knew it briefly. Uh, you're going to Google it there, right? You know, then we suddenly realized that the Secretary of State was responsible for validating state election outcomes. But of course, now you've got all the local officials who are responsible for running elections. We just totally took that for granted that you're going to show up, there'll be voting machines there, they're going to work, the ballots will be counted. I mean, that's America. You know, we always, there's always a little bit of a rush when you go and vote. It's a great feeling. Well, now that is all under threat. And we are spending a lot of time and resources to protect state election officials who are committed to holding fair elections and upholding the outcomes, whatever they might be. I mean, this is kind of like rear guard action. These are things that we thought we'd figured out 140 years ago when we got rid of Tammany Hall and all the, you know, as I said, I'm from Chicago, all the corruption around that we kind of we thought we'd cleaned out the stable and it turns out there's still a lot of work to be done there. So yes, we are devoting significant resources to um, selecting and defending election officers who we think will do a fair, capable job. And this is crucial. I mean, there, there you know, I, people toss around the phrase existential crisis, that may be a little too much, but it, we're in a very fraught situation. And I, I do believe that that would, would, would break us if there was clearly a result that all reasonable people believed had gone one way and an election official, just because he or she has the power to do it, says, no, that's, you know, it's not raining out, even as the rain comes down. And you know, at that point, it, then it's like an Iranian election or a Soviet election where we lose, lose total faith in the outcome. That would be a devastating development. That would, and there have been so many great chats that came into the into the chat. Uh, so many great questions that came into the chat. We didn't get enough time to really talk about the third topic, but I want to quickly get at it before we move to our, our rapid fire questions from from Kitty. But a lot of people talk about 
you know, the youth and the youth being our future and the youth being our hope and you being a college professor, just really interested in, in, in your perspective on youth today and uh, what you're kind of seeing around the discourse and how they agree and disagree. Yes. So there's good news and bad news. I think, first of all, you have just, you have to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who walks onto Dharma's campus at age 18. They don't remember 9-11 because they weren't alive, but they were born into a world that was shaped by 9-11. And effectively, we were at war in Afghanistan for their entire life. And then sometime around middle school, you had the financial crisis. So at that point, the economy collapses. Many of these students were personally affected. People lost their homes. I had a student who had to move back, move out of the country because they had lost their home. And, and so they haven't seen a lot that has worked terribly well. And of course, they've seen all the partisanship that we've been describing that shows up on social media and everything. They haven't seen politics work. They haven't seen big business work. They have watched the luster come off of big tech. We just haven't shown them the best of America. Climate change, we haven't acted in a significant way over their lifetime, even as the threat becomes more and more obvious and apparent. So I think part of our job is to not let them become too cynical, to show them that things can actually get better. And I think that's what happens with the small referendums. I think, you know, um, the good news is that they believe passionately that things can change. And Unite, it's funny, Unite America is where it is because of one of my students. So I had a student, Thomas Hahn, who was involved with federal budget issues. And he invited me to be on a panel with someone he knew, Nick Troiano, who had been working on budget issues. And that was where I, I met Nick, who is now our very, very extraordinarily talented executive director. So. Our executive director, I met through one of my students and his extracurricular involvement in federal deficit issues. So, you know, people are, the students are searching for a way to make a difference. I think our job is to show them that there are paths, meaningful paths to reform. Uh, at the same time, I am a little discouraged about the quality of discourse on campus. I mean, what you've been reading is not wholly exaggerated. And I think there are lots of reports of self-censorship. And I think our job as educators in higher education is to push, the word I use all the time is rigor. Rigor and curiosity. We are not in the business of providing answers, particularly in these kinds of subjects. I just finished teaching a class called The Future of Capitalism. My co-professor gave a great talk the last day. He said, look, I don't care what you think about capitalism, right? Even 10 weeks in this class, we're done. I don't care whether you like it or hate it. Some of you want to have a revolution. Some of you think it's the greatest thing ever. I do care that your beliefs evolved over the course of the term, that you will remain curious and open-minded about capitalism, that you are more open to the agreements and disagreements of people who vote differently than you do, and that you'll continue to be rigorous in your examination of all these things. And that I think we could do a better job of kind of pushing back on beliefs um, and creating a more open environment for robust dialogue. That, uh, Charlie, I like the idea of blending rigor and curiosity because I do like to, I think that Big Tent is, has been doing that 
um, you know, ever since we came together. And we really appreciate having you, Catherine, here to moderate and do such a great job of, um, you know, coming, having done your homework, but also including a lot of the input from Big Ten attendees. And, um, and Charlie, for your work with Unite America and um, your dedication to the rigor and curiosity, we are truly, truly grateful to have you under the tent with us, especially after having hand surgery yesterday. I mean, just show your hand, Charlie. Show us what you're working with here. Yeah, right. I'm yeah. typing left handed here. That's dedication to the democracy. But I am off the opioids for anybody who is wondering. Yeah, it's Tylenol clean. Big Ten is clean tonight. That's right. Um, really rapid fire. Uh, Catherine, Charlie, what are you reading? What should we read? Catherine, you want to go first? Catherine, go. Don't ask me. Um, I, I'm not as much of a big reader, but I would say being mortal. If I read books about politics, I'd be up all night. Oh, I'll give you two books that I think are one's very helpful, one's very encouraging. I, I always recommend Jonathan Haidt's book, H-A-I-D-T. He's a moral psychologist at NYU. His book is called The Righteous Mind, and it explains the psychology behind the different worldviews of conservatives and liberals. Leave aside Republicans and Democrats, and just kind of walks through. There, there are five or six basic values that we all hold to be important. Uh, virtue, equity, loyalty, sanctity. And liberals put more weight on some of them, equity. Conservatives put more weight on others, sanctity, loyalty. And he just explains why that is the case and then looks at issues and explains why people who weight these issues differently will see events differently. It's a, it's a wonderful exposition of how sane, thoughtful people can see the world differently. I would recommend, uh, I think it's called Our Better Angels by John Meacham, who's an historian. It's a brilliant book that looks at other periods in American history where we've been challenged. So the kind of the period when um, the KKK was very prominent in the South, much more so than we know in the John Birch Society and really how we faced that down and had the Joe McCarthy era. And again, he points out, I mean, Joe McCarthy, even after his downfall had a surprising amount of support. And the optimistic thing about the book and the reason it's called Better Angels is that it just takes good people engaging in the system to push back our worst angels. And they've kind of always been with us in America. They're always, it's part of human nature, but at our best, we are better than our worst. Thank you so much. John Meacham's podcast is podcast. Oh my God. It was said they're just wonderful that yes. I know. Love them too. Um, yeah. I, 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 it's eight o'clock and I, so I must wrap up because we are prompt at Big Tent as well. Um, and I just want to say, Charlie, you are a better angel, and we uh, deeply appreciate you coming here and your work. I hope everyone goes to Unite America's website, check it out, support their work. We all need to unite and come together. Um, I just want to say that we hope we'll see you in 2022. Um, it's a big year for our democracy and for Big Tent USA. And as Tracy mentioned at the beginning, we're kicking it off with my Senator, Sheldon Whitehouse. Um, on January 12th. It's going to be great. It's already on the website. Oh yeah. Nice. nice. If you want some swag from Big Tent, go on our website, check it out. There's a really nice visor. And um, I wish everybody a very, very happy, healthy, safe holiday season. So we'll see you in 22. Let's get to work. Let's get cracking. Thanks everybody. Thank you, Charlie and Catherine. Good night. Yeah. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for having me. I wrote on your coattails. <laughs> you guys are awesome.